please open with me to the Gospel of Matthew. here with the ear. It's a lot of things with all the masks and all right. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 46 through 50. The various ways that people view the church today. Uh, some see it as a gas station. The church is a place where you kind of spiritually fill up if you will, your spiritual gas tank. When you're running low, you get a good sermon. They'll keep you going throughout the week. Some see the church as kind of like a movie theater in that sense. That the church is a place that offers entertainment, go to escape for an hour, hopefully in comfortable seats. Sorry. Others see the church as something like a drugstore place where you can fill a prescription that will deal with your particular brand of pain. Yet some others see the church as like a big box retailer, a Best Buy. It offers a place for the best products in a clean and, and safe environment. But today I want to give you a, a more biblical view of the church one that Jesus himself came to, to die for and to proclaim. Christ gives us a look at what the church really is, and that is a family of God, the household of God, a family. Look with me at verses 46 through 50. God's word says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man and told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless this time in your word. And Spirit, we implore you to do the work that you do so well, which is illuminating the word of God for us and applying it to our hearts. So Lord, as we wander through this text, I, I pray that you will help us to get an elevated sense of our family of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage is really a bridge text in Matthew. In chapter 12, we have seen that there is a lot of conflict going on with Jesus and the Pharisees over this healing of the the demon-possessed man. The Pharisees' claim is that it is of satanic origin, and Jesus' power is of Satan, and he's come to, to bring Satan's kingdom to earth. 
And Jesus counters with a logical argument. You can turn back there if you, if you want to. In verse 28, he, he says, A house divided cannot stand. And then he goes on to say, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see his logical argument there? If a demon is not doing this, if Satan is not doing this, then in fact I am who I say I am. And I have come to bring what I've said I've come to bring. And that is the kingdom of God to earth. That's the main theme in Matthew. That's why I've named this sermon series the Upside Down Kingdom. It's God's kingdom coming to earth And it looks upside down, but really our kingdom is the one that's upside down and his is right side up and it's coming and supplanting the kingdom of man. And so now, if you look ahead in chapter 13, you can glance down there, you see that Jesus in the next whole chapter is going to go on to explain what this kingdom of God looks like. Okay, so the kingdom of God is coming. What does it look like? And he's going to use a lot of, a lot of metaphors like seeds and soils and weeds and nets and treasures and pearls to describe this kingdom that he has come to bring. And wedged right before that, the conflict in the description of the kingdom is this little narrative. These four verses. And Jesus, in these verses, Jesus' mother and, and the four brothers, we assume, have arrived at this controversy and they have seen the, the back and forth that is going on with the Pharisees. And in Mark, the parallel text, in Mark 3, we see the reason that, is not, that Matthew doesn't give here, the reason they come. Because they think that Jesus is out of his mind. He's crazy. He's lost it. He has a Messiah complex. And so they come to take him home. That's why they're there. He's been criticizing the most respected religious people of their day, doing battle with them, the Pharisees, getting progressively and progressively more more argumentative with them. He's made claims that they think are crazy, that he is the one that they've been waiting for all these years. And so they come to take him home. Although the scriptures later show us that they'll all come to faith, John 7 tells us that at this point, they were not believers. They were not. They later on come to be believers, but not here. And so they arrive, and they cannot get into the house where Jesus is teaching. So they send a a messenger in to tell Jesus, we're here, come out to us. And that message is related to Jesus and that sets up our text. He turns this moment into an important teaching moment about the family of God. He's going to teach us what the family of God is. He's going to take this moment to show us the priority that the kingdom of God has in your life. The priority that the kingdom of God has in your life. This is nothing new. This is what Jesus has been, has been teaching on all along. He told the, the rich young ruler, leave everything and follow me. 
That's how important the kingdom is. He told another man whose father had just died, don't, don't go back and bury your father. Follow me instead. There's the priority of the kingdom. He told his disciples and the crowds over and over again, anyone who does not pick up his cross and follow me is not fit to be one of my disciples. That's the priority of the kingdom of God in your life. He keeps raising the bar in all these different important areas in our life. And here, he is going to raise the bar where family is concerned. Who is your family? Where's the priority in family? The priority of God's family. Jesus asks in verse 48, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Here Jesus is giving a really challenging teaching. A really hard teaching for some. That our view of family is necessarily challenged when it comes to following Christ. See, when you repent and you give your life to Christ, there's a lot of things that happen that are actually unseen by the naked eye. A lot of spiritual things happen when you come to Christ. I mean, for one thing, you're, you're given the spirit that comes to reside inside you, to be with you. We don't see that, but it actually happens. God tells us that, that when we come to Christ, when we repent and come to Christ, that our sins are totally forgiven. We don't see that. And many of us don't feel that, but it's true. When you come to Christ, you're given a new nature, the Bible tells us. A new nature, a new creation. Then in Romans 7 says, wars with our old creation. We feel that, don't we? On almost a daily basis. We have this new creation. We don't see it, but it's there. And now Jesus is saying, you're actually given a new family. You're given a new family when you come to Christ. Galatians 4, one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, Galatians 4, starting in verse 4, describes it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts to cry, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. God didn't, did not have to use the concept of adoption. He didn't have to use that concept. He could have used the concept of just the new nature. You have a new nature. But he wanted to make it more intimate. Something we could relate to. So he uses this, this concept of adoption. You're in the family of God. You have a new family. And that new family comes with both privileges and responsibilities. Both privileges and responsibilities. The privileges are, are numerous. I'll just describe one here. 
Anne Graham Lotz in her book, Heaven, My Father's House, tells of when people want to visit her father's house, Billy Graham, in North Carolina. They drive up the long driveway, she writes, and they come to the gate and they knock on the gate and say, Billy, let us in. We've read your books. We've watched you on TV. We've written to you. Now we want to come to your house. And she says, my father says, depart from me. I don't know you. You're not a member of my family. You've not made arrangements to come home. And then she says, when I drive up that long driveway and knock that same knock, and I say, Dad, this is Annie. I've come home. And the gate is thrown right open, and I go inside because I'm my father's child. What a privilege it is to be in God's family that we have this kind of access to God, the Creator. We're in His family. I mean, when we just prayed there, you were actually praying in the spiritual throne room of heaven to God. That's amazing. I mean, Hebrews 4 tells us that's the kind of bold access we have. Ephesians 2.18 says that, that we have been granted this access to God because we're his children, his family. That we can actually call him Abba, which is an intimate name that, that, that we can kind of translate into God, Daddy. We have that kind of relationship with him. And he cares for us. And he loves us just like his own son Jesus. He loves us just like his own son Jesus. Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Adoption is a greater mercy than Adam had in paradise. Just let that sink in for a moment. Ponder that. Adoption is a greater mercy than Adam had in paradise. I think if that's true, if what Watson is saying is true, we're in, a, we're in a more intimate position than Adam and Eve were. I think that's maybe shades of what's behind what Peter is writing in his second letter, in his first letter rather, when he says that angels, when they look at our salvation, they, they, they wonder about it. They long to look into it. Our relationship with God is closer than the angels. What a privilege. But it also comes with responsibilities. Being in God's family comes with responsibilities. Responsibilities towards each other. And that's what Jesus is showing here. Now, Jesus, by saying that he did, by not going out and by saying, no, these are my mothers and brothers, he's not denigrating the physical family. He, he's shown all along in the greater context of Scripture that he holds the, the physical family of God in it very highly, doesn't he? Over and over again, he's going to remind the, the people about the fourth commandment. He reminds us to be kind towards our family and to honor them. He was kind towards his mother in, in, in the, uh, the second chapter of John. 
honoring her when, when she came to him and said, they've run out of wine. Can you, can you help out? And he turned the water into wine. At the cross, he took care of his mother, if you remember. One of the seven words from the cross, he looked down, he knew he was in his final hours or moments, and he said, John, take care of Mary. Take care of her. He appeared to his brother James, specifically in his resurrected form. He cares for his family. He cares for the physical family. Jesus is not eschewing the physical family at all. But what he's doing here is he's elevating, giving us an understanding of elevating the family of God in our life. We have a new responsibility alongside our physical family. Letting us know that there are now responsibilities towards the family of God that sometimes even take priority over the physical family. Wow. He's showing that right here. That's a tough one to, to really grapple with. Because family is so important. I mean, moving up here to Maine, it's even uh, given me a, a greater appreciation for the physical family than I had down in Connecticut. Families are really important. And this can be a challenging teaching, saying, yes, the physical family is important, but the spiritual family is just as important and sometimes takes priority over. Whoa. When does that happen? How, how do I get from where my heart is now to, to where Christ is saying it should be? Because that's hard for me. It's hard for me. So I want to suggest to you eight ways that you can elevate the importance of the family of God in your life. And the first one we just saw today. Commit yourself in membership to a local church. Commit yourself to membership in a local church. Commit yourself like the way you commit to your physical family. Your physical family sometimes... You have to drop everything because you have to care for your physical family. You know, sometimes with the family of God, you have to drop everything because the family of God has needs. So commit yourself to a gospel-preaching local church. Secondly, meditate on the word regarding the church. Meditate on the word of God regarding the church. The church is riddled throughout the New Testament. And just take time to meditate on what God says about the local church. Men's discipleship that meets here on Wednesday mornings. We took three weeks recently, three weeks, to meditate on one verse of Scripture. I want to read it to you. It's in Ephesians 3. And Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light to, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages by God, who created all things, so that through the church, listen to this, and, and, and be ready to be blown away, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you know what that's saying? 
Christ is going to be made known. Jesus is Lord is going to be proclaimed through the witness of the church. That's amazing. What we do here has cosmic implications. Third, consider how you can serve the church. 1 Peter 4 tells us each one should serve using whatever gifts they have received. C.S. Lewis wrote about the family of God this, to go to, church, go to church in a posture of service, not an agenda, to contribute, not to criticize, and to be a blessing, not just to bless. Good words. Fourth, Consider the church in your life planning. Consider the church in your life planning. Before taking that job that you want so much, consider looking at the geography around that job to see if there's a good church there first. When considering a new house, consider if it's in the vicinity of a good local gospel preaching church or at least clumps of members of one. Consider considering a possible marriage partner. What is their track record in loving and serving the church? That should be a question you ask. So consider the church in your big life decisions. Fifth, practice hospitality. Again, in 1 Peter 4, he encourages us to offer hospitality to one another. One of the easiest ways to elevate the church in your life and in your eyes is to practice hospitality. Have someone over in the church that you don't know so well. It's it's really easy to gravitate towards the people that, that you just know and you have history with, but but consider having someone over for lunch or for dinner or for coffee even that you don't know so well. Sixth, make time to be with fellow church members. In other words, just as you make room in your schedule for your family, physical family, make room in your schedule for your spiritual family. Seven, consider practicing a one another once a week. Consider practicing a one another once a week. Do you know that there, in Greek there are over 100 times in the New Testament says one another? One, over 100 times. It really forms the basis, this one anothering of, of true Christian fellowship. Just listen to just a few. Honor one another. Build up. Admonish. Care for one another. Serve. Teach. Forgive one another. Be patient with. Speak truth in love to. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Submit to one another. Show hospitality to. Comfort one another. Exhort. Pray for. Confess your faults to one another. Consider that list, and it's longer. Just pick a one another out each week and start one anothering to elevate 
your view of the local church. And finally, eighth, consider involvement in a discipleship relationship within the church. You hear this from, from us all the time. Be a Peter, be a Paul and a Timothy. Be a Paul, be mentoring somebody, and be a Timothy, being mentored by somebody. Actively find those people. Pray that God will lead you to someone who can mentor you and that you can mentor. These are all ways we can begin to elevate the importance of the family of God in our life and begin to prioritize the family of God the way I think Jesus is telling us to here. But there's a second priority Jesus wants us to understand, and that's the priority to the king, the priority to the family of God. But he also is telling us here there's another priority, the priority of the king. Look at verse 50 with me. For whoever does the will of God, the will of my Father in heaven, is my brother and sister and mother. So how do you know who's in the family and who's out? How do you, how do you recognize a family member? I mean, in, in physical families, many times they have physical traits, right? Like they all have a, a certain hair color or eye color or facial feature or the same tilt of a head, the Habsburg royal family in Spain ruled for almost 200 years and they were instantly recognizable. Do you know why? They had what was called, has come to be called, the Habsburg jaw. This huge protruding jaw that was so pronounced that most of them had such an underbite that they couldn't fully close their mouth. The mark of a family member in God's household is not a physical trait, but a heart trait. A desire to do the will of God. A desire to obey the Father's will. Elizabeth Elliot at Urbana 76 told a story about her brother Thomas. Their mother used to let him play with paper bags in the living room. And one day she walked into the living room and they were strewn all over. And she went in and Tom was singing hymns with his father on the piano. And she confronted Thomas and said, what, you, you, I've told you to put these bags away before you can do anything else. But he responded, he said, Mom, I'm singing hymns to God. And the father said, it's no good singing God's praises if you're disobedient. Obedience is the Habsburg jaw of the family of God. The heart that desires to prioritize God's will over their own. Psalm 119 describes this kind of heart. And I encourage you to go home today and read through Psalm 119. Because it describes the kind of heart that Jesus is saying is a trait of the family of God. Listen and consider your own heart, just a couple of these. The psalmist writes, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I find great delight in your commandments, which I love. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Oh, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation all day long. How sweet the words, your words are to the, my taste. Sweeter than honey in my mouth. My heart is set upon keeping your decrees to the very end. I rejoice at your word like one who finds a great spoil. Brothers and sisters, that in some way, shape, and form should describe our hearts. That kind of desire and that kind of obedience should describe us. Jesus told us himself in John 8, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples. You can't get around obedience in the New Testament. However much we want to kind of do mental and physical and, and, and word grammatical gymnastics, we can't get around it. Obedience is a hallmark. It's a trait. It's the Habsburg jaw that everybody should be able to see of the Christian family. And when we hear that, and when we read that, and we honestly look at our own hearts and our own lives, there can be a great disparity there, can't there? I look at my own life, my own heart, and I go, if that is supposed to be what I look like, I don't look like that most of the time. Much of the time. I do what I want to do. And it can lead me, and maybe it can lead you in one, these one of two directions that I go into. I go into either dry obedience, dry duty, or defeat. I'm either de- defeated because I, I haven't obeyed him and I don't want to obey him, or just I go into dry duty. I'll just do it. I'll, I'll clench my, my hands and my jaw and I'll just do it. So I want to leave you today with two ways to grow in our delight to obey. Because we all have to grow in this. And the first one is spend more time with your Savior. You want to grow in your obedience? You want to, you want to take your dry duty and start making a desire of your heart? Spend more time with your Savior. In that movie, The Beauty and the Beast, there's that montage that, you know, towards the end of the movie where, where Belle is spending time in, in the Beast's castle and they're showing them interacting together and, and Belle starts to see that the Beast is actually a little kind and a little generous and a little sacrificial and her heart begins to break towards him. Do you remember that montage? That's the result because she is growing in her love for him. So too with us. As we spend time with Jesus, our heart breaks towards him. Our heart wants to obey him. We want to follow in his footsteps. 
As we spend time in the word, learning how Jesus was kind to lepers and outcasts, forgiving the woman who was caught in adultery, gently restoring Peter after he had had put the stiff arm up to him, patient towards his disciples, our heart begins to break and grow in our obedience. When we spend time in prayer to him, just talking and sharing our lives. Have you ever done that in prayer where there's no agenda? I just want to be with you. Here's what I'm going through. Here are my thoughts. You know, the, the, the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms are just that. As we spend time hearing how he's changed people, haven't the testimonies just been delightful for our own spiritual growth this last month? Hearing how God has changed people from the inside out. That's Christ. When we spend time talking to our brothers and sisters, maybe doing a one another with each other, Talking about the things of Christ. It's one of my favorite times with my, with my friends. Is when we just talk about Christ. Our hearts begin to soften towards him. And we begin to want to obey. Not have to obey. So spend time with your Savior and let your heart grow fonder. But there's a second way our delightful obedience grows. And we're going to do that right now. That's the beautiful thing. And that is spending time gazing at the gospel. You want your heart to grow. You want to obey. You want your heart to be different. Spend time gazing at the gospel. The Puritans used to call this the visible gospel, the Lord's table. It's, it's a tangible way. I think that's why God gave it to us to do, and it says in Scripture, each time you gather, so that we would be gazing at the gospel on, a, on a, at least a weekly basis, so that this is a grace that he's given us, so that our hearts will be changed and we will want to follow him. Not have to follow him. So as we gaze at the bread and juice, I want to give you some things to think about. I want us to remember that as we gaze here, these elements represent that you are totally forgiven of all your sin. Totally forgiven. Past, present, and future. I want you to remember what a great cost our salvation was. Jesus' very life. We remember that salvation is free, but it's not cheap. As we gaze at these elements, remember that our penalty for sin has been totally paid for. Remember that God's wrath has been exhausted on Christ. And as someone said earlier, he has nothing left but love and acceptance for us. Think about that. Remember that by his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. As you gaze at the visible gospel, remember that Christ was made sin for us. 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. Remember that death has no hold on us because of what Christ has done. Remember that Christ in us gives us the power to obey. As we gaze at the visible gospel, remember how much Christ loves us. That there is no longer any condemnation. That his body was broken, not ours. That he willingly went to the cross. We remember that he did not stay dead as we gaze at the visible gospel here. But he rose again on the third day. And death has no hold on him. So guess what? Death has no hold on us. Consider that as we gaze at the gospel in a moment. As I invite the elders to come up and distribute the elements, I'd I'd like us to take a moment in your bulletin to look at the prayer of confession. Because it it is right as we enter into this time of communion to ask the Holy Spirit to bubble up in us things that we need to be repentant of. So please take time to read over that confession.